Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. It's a great one. Marianne's guest is Erin Wing from Animal Outlook, who is one of the people who has been doing the unbelievably difficult work upon which this entire movement rests, undercover investigations of factory farms. Yeah, I, I don't know how these people do it. I don't know how Aaron does it. It It's like even hearing about it is difficult, though this was a great interview. And interestingly, one of the one of the facilities that she was in and she will talk about was a fish farm. Uh, and and she just has such interesting things to say about what goes on there, about the people who work there. M- amazing interview. On this week's Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing that conversation with Aaron. So as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get that link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up. And you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, we would love it so much if you would join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you are a member of the Flock, please join us for our Flock Friday Zoom calls. That is Fridays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Whether we have a guest or we just chat amongst ourselves, we focus on how to be better activists and how to take care of ourselves in these tough times. Last week, we had Kim Stallwood on, who was a recent guest and has just such tremendous insight into the history and the future of the animal protection movement. So if you are a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Yeah, one of the things that Kim said that really struck me and really stuck with me is, you know, we're talking about individual vegan advocacy, trying to talk people into being vegan or encourage people to be vegan as opposed to political advocacy. And we weren't putting one above the other. It was more just his insights about individual vegan advocacy. And he was talking about, and I I hope I don't misquote him. He'll be on next week to refute it if I do. Uh, uh, But he was saying, and this really struck me as true, that for us, going vegan was such an extraordinary experience, a life-changing experience. And it just changed the way we saw the world. And it was so big to us that we think other people are going to have that experience. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily true. Yeah. And that's certainly something we have seen. So other kinds of advocacy are important as well. Yeah, I was actually just interviewing someone, uh, a famous chef. I was interviewing him for a future issue of Veg News. And he wasn't vegan, but he has a lot of vegan restaurants and he's, he's been, you know, he's pretty well known. He's been on a lot of reality TV shows, things like that. And it was a really difficult interview for me to do because, you know, on one hand, he's really mainstreaming veganism, but on the other, he's just, he obviously doesn't understand the ethos of it. And it did make the point to me that I've been thinking about, which is you can't always appeal to people's consciousness. You just have to like put the burger in their hand or put the cruelty-free mascara in their vanity drawer, you know, and make veganism and cruelty-free living as accessible and affordable as possible and just sort of sidestep the appealing to people's consciousness. But also, as Kim pointed out, people may support legal changes or legislative changes or, or policy changes even though they're just never going to go vegan. Right. Yeah. People are just so fucking weird. It is pretty weird. We So last week we talked about how we were heading upstate for the weekend to look at a couple net zero communities. It was 
weird and surreal to be out in the world, though we are post-vaccinated, so yay. A couple exciting things. We did get to go to a, a brewery in Geneva, New York, that was all vegan menu. There was outdoor seating. There's loads of breweries up there and wineries. It's a big thing in that area. And so I just thought this place will be empty. Right. <laughs> they had a very limited menu. It was all vegan and, it, you know, there were not a lot of things on it. And like you couldn't get a It was packed, it was absolutely called, packed. Both yeah, kids, weird. Right. both college kids. It was crazy. I was astounded. We sat outside on a picnic table, sort of out uh, away from everyone. It is called Bottomless Brewing, by the way, for anyone who's interested. And I know you're excited to finish recording because we got some... Uh, some put into those like, you know, cans that they do it right there from the tap and you're excited to drink yours. So, <laughs> um, but so it was let's fun. get through this fast. <laughs> okay. Actually, I have frequently recorded this when, when I have already had a glass of something. I mean, right. we do it on Friday. Well, we're doing it this week on Friday evening. I mean, come on. Yeah. So aside from that and, you know, Ithaca, we went to that uh, Angel Hearts Diner, which also had curbside pickup. So we sat in <gasps> oh, our so car good. and ate it. So, so good. good. Like, crazy. Like, Seriously. Yeah, really world changing. It's like diner food, <laughs> but it's such a huge yeah. step above. And not only because it's vegan. Well, so last week we had mentioned that we were, you know, looking at these not zero communities and it is a very weird world to dip your toe into. And I really don't want to pretend that I know that much about it because I'm just learning. But I will say that there is like, you know, uh, the people who are involved in net zero community building have a very strong mission to create spaces for climate change refugees and for like people who well, just to do the right the thing and, and yeah. yeah, try to like be thinking about living in the future rather than living in the past and, and yeah. live the way you're supposed to. And, you know, we still don't know what's happening. We're exploring all options, but we discussed last week that sometimes this ethos comes with people who have chickens or backyard chickens, or they allow chickens in the communities because they sort of are just, not at all aware of the cruelties inherent in in egg production and in chicken production. So I wanted to just sort of circle back around on that because, you know, one of the places we looked at, they really do bend over backwards to like try and get a backyard bird situation as innocuously as you can. But, you know, it's not innocuous. It's still a system that is reliant on cruelty, is reliant on all right, no. you don't have to, you don't have to go through the spiel. Okay, everybody sorry, listening but, knows. All right, so but these people didn't know. As everybody listening, I'm sure is aware, people just think backyard chickens are incredibly benign and 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 just lovely, and and they want to be living in the past, not in the future. Yeah, right. One of the communities just gets chickens and then they kill them. But one of the communities gets rescued. Or they get rescued chickens and then they I don't keep think them it's that pet. they get rescued. They don't get rescued chickens. So it's nothing about where the chickens come from. Oh, okay, but they, keep but they them. have a commitment not to kill them. Okay, that, okay. That either to find them a home. Well, actually, I think it's to find them a home. I don't mm. know where they're going to find a home. So people who kill them, them. The farm sanctuary. <laughs> yeah, right. In the so middle of the anyway, night. it's very annoying. You have to constantly be on your. Uh, on your best behavior as the vegan in the room, but still sticking to your, you know, sticking to your guns. And you have to also understand that you can't always let perfect be the enemy of the good. It's very difficult to get a net zero home. It shouldn't be, but it is. And if that's a value, which is a value for us, like, where do you draw, where do you draw a line? I don't, I don't know. 
I mean, I think sometimes those lines, we have to figure out where we're going to draw them. But this this bending over backwards to say, oh, well, of course we would never slaughter the chickens, ignoring all the other cruelties that you are supporting, did make me think of the movie that everyone is talking about that we watched as well this past week, which is Seaspiracy. You're probably wondering what the connection could possibly be. The connection, I'm just going to say, the connection is this backbending that people do to justify behavior and sort of like do anything they possibly can to convince themselves that they are ethical in their choices while they still eat some animals because they cannot, for the life of them, explore veganism as an option. It's like once the V word comes up, they just hear like, la, 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 anything they can to eat the eggs and anything they can to eat the fish. I know it's unbelievable. It's so much trouble. Like they go through so much trouble and there's so much deception. Like these people don't know what's really happening with the eggs. They don't know where the, where the chickens come from. They don't know how many issues there are, but you know, they latch onto one. And even that it's like, what do they know how long chickens live when they're not laying eggs? What are they going to do with these? Just don't eat eggs. It's so much. And also it's just all the trouble you have to go through to keep animals. Like, you know, what if you want to go on vacation? You have to find somebody to take care of them. What if they get sick? You have to come take them to the, like just to have eggs. Yeah. It's it's crazy. People are well, nuts. But let's talk about seaspiracy. I, I was just talking to my best friend Erica uh, about about the film, and she was like, "Oh, I think I have to watch it, but I don't want to." And know. you know, because it's like there are so many articles about it. So many people are talking about this film. It's like one of the top ten films on Netflix right now. I heard it was number one. I mean, I don't know how long, but that's the great. number one film on Netflix. That's Craziness. amazing. I will say, if you are battling with whether to watch it, I would say watch it. it I, there's not like a lot of gory footage. And when it's coming, you kind of know and you can look away. And it's not a lot of it. I'm not going to say there's nothing horrible in there. There's loads of horrible things in there. But it was, I thought it was going to be worse, much worse, the amount of footage that was in it. It, it. it was a good job. They balanced it well. So it, of course, talks about the declining state of the ocean. And it is... It is done by the folks who made Cowspiracy, hence Seaspiracy. And Cowspiracy was also very, very popular, which is amazing. I remember the dark days of vegan films, just like I remember the dark days of vegan cheese. There were very few choices. (laughs) And now it seems like they're not only choices, but they're giant ones. I thought that this movie was incredible in the sense that like the filmmaker went into really dangerous situations where he could have gotten killed and and it was all in an effort to expose the sort of ugly underbelly of what's actually going on with the exploitation of fish and it is impossible i think well maybe i'm biased but i think it's impossible to watch this film and ever eat fish again not that i ever ate fish in my life i didn't even when i ate meat the thing I wanted to talk about it with it, I, I agree with everything you say about the movie. I think everybody should see it unless you're really, really hypersensitive to bad footage because it's good and it's informative. But the thing I wanted to talk about in particular was this article I saw in Greenpeace. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I've seen Seaspiracy. Now do I need to go fish free to save the ocean? And it's really exactly, well, it's such a related issue to what we were talking about before, the, the amount that people will bend over backwards to justify their animal evening. Because this, this article points out, it says there's a few 
there's some controversy, but it makes a lot of important points. And it's basically saying it's it, it's a good source of information about the hideous trouble that our oceans are in. Then he says, I'm not going to do a full fact check of conspiracy, but I do want to challenge the idea that the best thing you can do is to stop eating fish. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, the problem with claiming this is the best thing you can do or the only route to saving the ocean, which they never said it was the only route to saving the ocean, is that it's just not enough for some of us to change our diets. Well, yeah, but it's still a good idea to change your diet. That doesn't make it a bad idea. Points out that we need systemic change and we need it quickly. But this coming from, you know, like one of the points of the movie was that so many of the organizations that you might like send send some money to, to instead of stop eating fish, to hopefully make a change are corrupt. And, you know, that, I mean, that's the, that was the really big point of the, of the movie or one of them that, that these organizations are not doing anything systemic. And then, you know, it goes on to talk about how some people can't give up fishing communities around the globe, like in Aotearoa, depend upon fishing system. Well, yeah, I mean, seriously, you're bringing that up. Mm -hmm. Whatever vegans say that you should give up, whatever, all of these animal products, they all, you know, we all, we know that that we're talking to people who live the kind of lives that we live. And if people live other kinds of lives in which this is not possible, like that's a different issue. And we don't have to fix that before we figure out that everybody in the United States and Europe who's watching this movie is capable of stopping eating, or pretty much everybody, maybe not everybody. Don't go there. Like I, even I'm getting caught up now in, in trying to explain why. Yeah, like so what? If you have to eat fish, you're going to eat fish. We don't have to talk about that. The ocean doesn't have time to wait for every individual to go vegan. Right. <sighs> yeah. So go vegan and become political. That's the point. You do both, not one or the other. And your veganism feeds your politics and your politics feed your veganism. Do you think that people who say things like that, do you think that they like, wake up in the middle of the night angry because someone is shaking up their world? And do you think that they then feel like they have to like defend this really mainstream yes. position of eating meat? You mean, do I think meat eaters are defensive? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so funny. I was being interviewed not that long ago and it was like on a Facebook live and the, it was about my, my new book, the veg news guide to being a fabulous vegan. And there's a chapter about parenting in it. And so the person interviewing me brought up the parenting chapter and I was like, yeah, there's so many great ways of like making sure that your kids have community and that they have the nutrients they need and this and that. It was a Facebook live and someone started commenting about how antinatalist, I'd never heard that word before, uh, before that vegans are. And I was just sitting there, you know, and she just started to defend, defend, defend people who have babies. And all, all I kept thinking is like, the whole world has, you have the whole world. Like, what are you talking about? You know? And it just sort of reminds no, me. I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And the person interviewing me who had, who has two children was like, oh, I think it's a great choice when people decide that they don't want to have children because they, because they care about the planet, you know, like, so she, she really validated all I did was sit there, right. As a person in, in my forties who has no children, no human children, it, it, 
it, it's very similar to when people defend. You don't actually have animal children either, Jasmine. You did not give birth to them. Yes, I did. I gave birth to them. You just don't know it, but it happened. Oh, you they didn't. were 14 at the time and 13 she at didn't. 12. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> weird. But it, it is. Thank ex- God they were chihuahuas. Ex- oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it is exactly the same as when the, the vegetarian, I'm not even going to say vegan, the vegetarian is sitting at the Thanksgiving table and they pass the turkey to the next person. And someone across the table is like, oh, really? Oh, I see. Oh, you think you're better than us? Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. And they're all so defensive. It's exactly the same thing when you try to encourage people to go vegan and they automatically go immediately to the idea that you want to ban meat. Like the 4% of us who are vegan or whatever percentage it is could actually ban (laughs) something that the other 96% want. It's exactly the same thing. Like it's all the same thing. They're so defensive. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Guilt. They're guilty. Okay, so watch the movie See Spiracy. I'm curious yeah, if, anyone, if anyone's if you can watch it. If anyone's listening to this, I will be curious not only what you think, but also how you feel this movie is impacting those in your life and especially those who don't eat meat. So if you have any anecdotes about it or anything, please let us know. Find us on social media at our henhouse, or if you're in the flock, you can comment in the flock Facebook group. And I'm not sure I, I I'm not sure I actually made the point, but I learned stuff from this movie. There's stuff about the fishing industry that I just didn't know. Me too. Yeah. It's an important watch. Well, I think we should transition to the interview because I'm excited about hearing it. Uh, A longtime animal lover, Erin Wing, became a supporter of the animal rights movement after watching documentaries, speaking of which, such as Cowspiracy, Food Inc., and Earthlings. The undercover footage featured in those films inspired her to become an investigator for Animal Outlook, formerly known as Compassion Over Killing, for two years, where she went on to complete four investigations in the dairy, chicken, and aquaculture industries. After an intense last investigation at a dairy factory farm in Southern California, she retired from the field. The suffering she witnessed animals endure in the animal agriculture system compelled her to continue working with Animal Outlook, assisting new investigators as the deputy director of investigations. Erin will be joining Marianne right after this. Our Hen House has a family of podcasts. In addition to the Our Hen House podcast, which you're listening to right now, you can also listen to the Animal Law podcast or the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear and what's not to like, please, please leave us a friendly review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us tremendously because that's how we grow. And that's how we reach more and more people with information on how to change the world for animals. Thanks for listening. Welcome to our hen house, Erin. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. It's really great to have you because I think that, you know, nothing has changed the scene more for everybody and for animals than undercover investigations. And yet so many of us don't really know what goes on when people are doing them. So I I really thank you for joining us to talk a little bit about it. And, you know, I think most of the people listening are probably pretty familiar with the results of undercover investigations and have seen a lot of the video. But can you just give us kind of a general description of how this works day to day? First of all, let's start at the beginning. How how do you even get the jobs? Yeah, so essentially it involves someone like myself who 
has never been in any of the states where there's an investigation that's conducted. And I went from where I lived to a state out in the middle of nowhere with no ties to family or friends or anyone. And the primary mission at hand would be to get a job at an animal agriculture facility. And for some people, it might take them several months to do so, or if they're really lucky, it might take them a couple of weeks. But all in all, it's really nerve-wracking. It's a nerve-wracking situation to be in to to just go to these places and then expect a job. And then that's that's the only reason why you're there and you're hoping you're crossing your fingers and you're, you're really hoping that that actually happens for you. Yeah. It sounds incredibly nerve wracking. Do you choose targets or do you just get jobs wherever you can? Do you choose industries or particular facilities or just uh, catch as catch can? It's really a lot of luck for me, at least when it comes to that. It was just, you know, you go somewhere and then hopefully they have a position open in the first place. And hopefully they, you know, bring you on as an employee, but it's, it's all a matter of just rolling the dice and then hoping that you get in somewhere. And when you get it, I don't know whether there's an interview process or how, like, is there a lot of suspicion about animal advocates? Are they, are they trying to find out, uh, you know, we hear that, but I wonder how it really operates on the ground because people are usually so much more inept than they pretend to be. And is there a lot of inquiry trying to figure out whether whether you're uh, an investigator? I don't really recall a lot of inquiry. It's really interesting because the industry as a whole, I think they're a lot more on edge when it comes to leaders of larger corporations. Yeah. I, I mean, I somehow always suspected that, that no matter how much you read industry propaganda about how careful they are, that, you know, most people are idiots. And like, not very good at what they do. Let's face it. So, all right. So then you're there, you've got the job. How, how long is it, does it usually ask, last? And what kind of information are you trying to collect? So it depends on what exactly we find at these facilities and that would influence how long the investigation lasts for. But essentially what we are wanting to document is standard practices uh, such as tail docking or castration of piglets or disbutting or dehorning of uh, young calves in the dairy industry. So there are a couple of different things that we would look for in terms of standard practice, but there's also obviously the cruelty as well, which would be something that would be pretty compelling to document because it is part of the industry, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. You mean by the cruelty, you mean like the kind of gratuitous cruelty, just people just just beating on animals or, or things like that? Is that what? Yes. As opposed to the regular cruelty? Yes. Involved, Yeah. Yeah. And no, I'm sure I'm I'm sure you inevitably see a lot of it. So what kind of equipment do you use? That is it's it's good equipment. Oh, or can you not say? <laughs> it's good equipment. It's it's it gets the job done. And I personally am a big fan of it. It was really comfortable for me. Oh good. So I know that two of your investigations were about fish, which is pretty unusual. The movement as a whole has become more and more interested in finding out what's happening to fish. So, like, I have no picture in my head of what a fish farm looks like. Can you just give us a picture of, of what it's like and what kind of work you were doing? Yeah, of course. It was really interesting to me because I'd never had any close interactions with fish. So, 
I had really no idea what aquaculture was like. So going into the facility that I investigated, which was uh, in Bingham, Maine, and it was Cook Aquaculture, there's this building and it's completely windowless. And I walked inside of it and I saw in different sections, there were just these tanks that were, you know, so many tanks and they were just housing the fish at different stages of their lives. And these tanks have these artificial currents running through them. The fish are completely dependent on the workers feeding them at the appropriate times. There were a lot of issues with fish being fed too much or too little. And there were a lot of die-offs of these fish in these tanks. So in one section called A building, there were fish in the egg stage of growth. And then they were also in the juvenile stage of growth, which would be the fry stage. And they were really, really small. And then for B building, C building, and D building, they were just uh, growing more and more and then being transferred to different types of tanks, larger tanks that would house more of the fish or keep them in captivity, concrete tanks, and then larger tanks that were outside and exposed to the elements as well. And how crowded? I mean, I've always heard that the fish are like hideously crowded. And, and are these salmon? Yes. And, and how crowded were the tanks? There were about, for at least the fish in the juvenile stage of growth, there were about, I'd say maybe 10,000 fish per tank. And it was crazy. Wow. You could barely see the bottom of the tank. They were so packed in there so tightly. And, and salmon are pretty big, aren't they? Or at least once they get to a, a growth stage, they're pretty big fish, right? Yes, they are. So I, I would bet that, you know, even I, I think might find it easier to work with fish. It's just even though I know what I know, and I care about fish, if I'm forced to detach myself, it's easier to detach from an animal who's was under, in water and, you know, so unfamiliar. I don't, I don't know. I've never tried it, but I would imagine a lot of people working there just didn't think that, you know, loads of people don't think fish like are really animals, that they have experiences and they feel pain. But you've actually indicated that, that you did see some compassion from some of the other workers. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I I always like to bring that up because it's so interesting to me. And I think it's just indicative of one of the worst parts of the nature of the animal agriculture industry is that you need to separate yourself from thinking of animals, the animals who are being farmed as living beings. But when these workers, when I was documenting these workers at Cook Aquaculture, and I was seeing them handling these fish, they were actually expressing far more remorse than workers did at all the other facilities I investigated. And there was something that a manager actually said at one point, and he was throwing fish around, slamming them against concrete tanks. And then suddenly he just turned to me one day and he said, you know, it used to bum me out because they just suffocate. And it's really rough. But over the years, you kind of get desensitized. And that just, wow. you know, solidified that was, he actually verbalized it. I was really surprised by that. Yeah, that I find that like so surprised. And what about for you? Did you find that working in a, I mean, did you feel uh, like, how do you do this? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what my question is, but I'm wondering whether fish are easier for you to detach from, but also you have to detach from animals in order to do this in some way. How do you pull this off? It's really hard, but... 
I mean, that's the nature of being an investigator for the most part, where you have to see these animals who you empathize with. And your mission is just to be there to document. You can't intervene. You can't interfere because it would compromise the investigation. So the only thing you can do is document what they're going through. And then the reality, the harsh reality of the situation is as an undercover investigator, you know that the animals you're documenting and filming, they're already gone. And that's the harsh reality of it. But the footage that we get serves as sort of like an epitaph that they leave behind and we're the keepers of that. And that's a role that's really important. And it's one that I didn't take lightly that whatever we film there, that's, that's what matters. And that's, if you keep focused on that mission, I think it's a lot easier to, to handle. Yeah. I think it, I mean, I think it's pretty hard to handle anyway, and I, I kudos to you for doing it, but is, is there a way you can use the video to do that too? Or do you think about that? Or do you just get whatever video happens? Like particularly with fish trying to get photographs or video that's going to overcome people's natural disinclination to think of fishes like having feelings or or mattering so much or or is that more a job for the editors i would say that our editing team is really great when it comes to that because they can draw that connection for people between animals who they're more familiar with like chickens or dogs or cats and draw that connection between them and fish and trying to make it clear to our audience that there's really not much of a difference there. They both feel and they're both suffering. And I think that really comes across in our investigations releases. How did you decide to do this? Like, it it just seems incredibly daunting. I think probably to not just to me, but to everybody listening. And it's really scary and it's really hard. So tell us your story. How did you end up doing this? Yeah, every time I'm asked this question, I try to give it a different answer than I did before (laughs) because there were so many different reasons that emerged in my life for why I decided to do it. Like I had a lot of experiences and I mean, the short form answer is, you know, I, I grew up living a really harsh life, but I had a really great connection with animals and animals were always kind to me and I identified with them and knew that if they were hurt by someone, they had to endure that pain and silence. And I felt that. So eventually I was in that time period of my life in my early 20s, trying to figure out what what I wanted to do with my life. And I watched all these documentaries with investigations footage. And I figured, you know, maybe I could do that. Even when I was in a situation where I was working this regular job to support my mother and my younger siblings, I was worried about them too, but I felt like I had to do this. So I applied to become an undercover investigator with Animal Outlook. And I just realized at that point how effective one person can be regardless of where they come from. And do you prepare in any way for how to like withstand, you know, maybe avoid PTSD or withstand some of the horrors? Is there anything that you can do to prepare yourself for this? You know, that's a good question because I didn't do any prep, really. I I think I did it in in one of the worst ways, which was to just watch the same investigations footage over and over and over again. And I realize now that that was not good for my mental health, but Mm -hmm. it was a way of myself, you know, prepping myself for it. But I recommend realizing that you can bear witness, but also 
keep track of your own mental health and your self-care is really important. So don't overextend yourself is what I would say for anyone who's thinking about becoming an undercover investigator. Don't do what I did, basically. Yeah. Though I, I don't know exactly how you would take care. Well, how do you take care of yourself? Like you mentioned that also that you're not really having contact with people back in the office or back home. And so where do you live and, and how isolated are you? And what do you do to take care of yourself? Yeah. So uh, essentially what, what I tried to do is uh, seek a living place that was as far away from the fa- factory farm site as possible without being too far. And I, myself, I would just stay inside as much as I could because I was so paranoid about encountering my coworkers from the factory farm sites at, you know, grocery stores or things like that. So I tried to keep my distance, stay inside. And I think something that was really helpful for me was the internet, just staying connected with people. But even then, like I I didn't really reach out to people a lot. And I think that really affected me. But you have this profound sense of isolation and loneliness as an investigator in the field. And you feel like you can't relate to anyone anymore because you can't really talk about the experiences that you go through. And that's one of the rough things about that type of career choice. Do you connect at all to the people that you're working with? I mean, it's pretty normal in any workplace to, you know, to have maybe not close friends, but acquaintances and chit chat. Do you manage to carry that on? Not me. I was really just keeping to myself and I felt like I couldn't relate. I felt like no one could understand me for the most part, aside from other people in the investigations department at Animal Outlook. But other than that, I really didn't feel like I could talk about my experiences with other people, which is sad now that I think about it because we should feel like we have that connection there where we all empathize with animals. I think I should have explored that more when I was in the field. Yeah, but I assume the danger is on your mind too. So you're saying that other people should should think about this if they're thinking about becoming an undercover investigator, but this is clearly not something that everybody could do. I mean, you're being very matter of fact about it, but this takes very certain kind of, of skill and personality. Do you agree? And, and what is it that makes for the kind of person who can do this? Yeah, it's, it's not for everyone. <laughs> and uh, I think you have to be the type of person who is fine with putting aside your own self-interest in a lot of ways. When you see animal suffering, you can't step in, but you can document it and reveal that greater pattern of violence that is the bigger picture. And if you have a bad day, you have to shove it down and keep going. And when you miss your loved ones, you have to be okay with being away from them. These are all factors that you know are part of being an investigator. So you can be selfless, but it's still hard to do. Do you think you're a particularly tough person? I would definitely say that I am. I experienced a lot before I became an undercover investigator. And, you know, I'm a survivor of trauma. And I grew up in really unsafe environments and low-income communities. And, I mean, I've, I've lived a pretty rough life before. So I think that was what helped prepare me to become an undercover investigator. Yeah, interesting. I, I mean, I think, I think trauma can do different things to different people. I mean, I am very, very sorry that you suffered it in your life. And it sounds like you turned it around almost into something positive that 
you're able to do this work that not everybody would be able to do. You know, we spoke before we started recording about how graphic we want to get. And, you know, I mentioned that the people listening to this podcast probably mostly know a lot of what goes on and are also fairly easily traumatized, as am I. But I still, particularly because it's fish, you mentioned the crowding. Can you just mention a few of the other things that makes this there these the short lives of these fish so awful and that kind of uncovers the sort of benign uh, view that the aquaculture industry is trying to promote about itself? Yeah, I'd be happy to elaborate more on that because what I saw there was pretty egregious in terms of, you know, if this was happening on a dairy or a pig factory farm, it would be a whole other other different story. I think it would be taken more seriously because at Cook Aquaculture, there were fish dying off by the thousands every single day, which was really crazy to me because it seemed like their lives were disposable. And fish were pecking out the eyes of their tank mates because they were where they weren't getting fed enough. Uh, there were they were ca- cannibalizing each other, and I documented workers stomping on fish, tossing them around without any concern for their safety. And then uh, I also documented them slamming fish against the sides of concrete tanks to kill them. Uh, there were two different methods of killing that was used at that facility, and that was either the slow suffocation of the younger fish or the really brutal killing of the larger fish by slamming them against tanks or slamming them uh, down on the ground. So it was pretty rough uh, seeing fish being treated that way, considering how how much they feel that people don't know and aren't aware of. Yeah, and, and it's just so frustrating when people think that ordering fish is sort of, oh, but it's from a fish farm, so, you know, it's fine, and it's just seriously not fine. I know that in addition to the fish farms that you've investigated, you've investigated at least one dairy. Can you can you give us, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the background on that investigation? So I've investigated two different dairy facilities, and I wanted to point that out because I noticed some similarities between the two of them. Uh, mostly the employment of the hip clamp at both facilities. So there's this metal hip clamp that they used to move cows with, and they would attach the hip clamp to the hips of the cows. And then with a long chain that is connected to that hip clamp, they would uh, string that around a tractor bucket. And then they would lift the tractor bucket and they would bring these cows up if they were sick or injured and they collapsed from, you know, exhaustion, they would lift these cows up by their hips. And at one facility, one cow was suspended completely in the air, about 20 feet in the air. And then at the other facility, one cow, I documented her being dragged through the dirt uh, and her face was just being dragged through the dirt. And that was an attempt to get them to stand, but it wasn't very effective at all. If anything, it just uh, injured or frightened the cows even more. Wow. I, I have to say, like, I keep thinking that I've heard it all, and then I hear something new. I've never heard about these hip clamps before. Yeah, wow. So what does it do to you when an animal is suffering? I mean, with the fish, I suppose there's a certain feeling that there's not a whole lot you could do. 
but, you know, because they're in water, aside from everything else that's going on. But if there weren't people around, you could help a cow. And what does it do that you can't do anything when you see an animal suffering like this? How, how do you handle it emotionally? Where do you put it? Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with what I mentioned before with just staying focused on the mission. And that was the only thing that kept me going was knowing that, you know, having that idea that I'm documenting these animals and I formed friendships with some of them. Um, I formed friendships with chickens and, and cows at different facilities because they were the only individuals I had connections with. I would see them every single day and I would try to give them some sort of comfort. But the only thing I can do is that and stay focused and know that the best thing that I can do is do what I'm there to do, document what they're going through, and at least their voices can be heard after the fact. So I'm assuming you were never caught, but correct me if I'm wrong. And if you were never caught, why were you never caught? Especially if you were making friends with some of the animals. Yeah, actually, um, I had some close calls, I think, that I just made up in my head, like, I remember one time at Cook Aquaculture, there was a worker who uh, turned to me one day in the morning and he just asked me what happened. What I thought he asked me was what happened to the cow? And I, my heart stopped and I was just like, I asked him, what, what was that? And he asked me the same thing again. And I was just wondering, how did he find out what, what, how did he know that I conducted this dairy investigation before I got to cook aquaculture? And all these thoughts were running through my head. So I asked him one more time. And then he says, what happened to the cow? And then I realized he was actually asking what happened to the car. And I didn't I... <laughs> understand him because of his New England accent. Right, right. So I, it was just a sigh of relief. I I don't know. If he could, I didn't know if he could tell, but it was just, oh my God, it was such a great relief. And I, I laughed a little bit. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, it's fine. The car is fine. <laughs> wow. Paranoia. <laughs> It'll get you every time. So what were your biggest fears? What would have happened to you if you had been kept caught or suspected? I mean, the the less intense thing that could happen would be that the investigation is over and you've probably wasted about a month or two or maybe even several months of your time and effort. And that's a lot of, uh, a lot to put on your shoulders as an investigator. But then there's also an issue with, you know, maybe some managers or owners of facilities being really upset and there being a chance of retaliation there. I remember a manager at uh, Martin Farms, he actually one day, he, well, he was a really avid gun enthusiast. So one day right. he showed me in the main office at the dairy facility where uh, he walked me in there and he showed me, hey, these are all these rifles that we have in here in case intruders show up. And maybe I'll teach you to sh how to shoot one one day. And I was just thinking, you know, I hope that he doesn't think about those rifles after this investigation comes out. Yeah, I can imagine that, you know, like there's part of you that must be saying, well, that's not going to happen. It's a business, you know, like they'll just leave, like they're not going to murder me. That doesn't make any sense. But you're living in the midst of an incredibly violent atmosphere with violence being committed every day. I can't imagine that that doesn't like hit all of your fear buttons to make you think that these people might be capable of more than more than I imagine. 
Yeah, that that actually really came through for me when I was doing my last investigation. I think that's what sort of influenced me to retire from investigations completely because I found myself at this dairy facility uh, in Southern California and the workers there were hitting these cows every single time I was there almost. Um, So there was one night where I was working the night shift and I was just watching and documenting these workers using these wooden canes to hit the cows and screaming at them. And the feeling that I had was so visceral for me because I've been in situations like that when during childhood where I was living in a really like abusive environment. So I felt like I was getting dragged back into that place in my head. And I realized, you know, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, it does seem like there's got to be a point where it's it's just time to go. Would you say that doing these uh, investigations and having these experiences changed you in some fundamental way? Oh, yeah. I mean, on the physical side of it, I uh, recently got diagnosed with asthma. I was having some issues with breathing, chest tightness and coughing and all that. And I I wasn't sure what exactly was wrong, but then I, I got diagnosed with that. So now I have to use an inhaler and take medication to be able to breathe properly. And that's something I probably wouldn't have dealt with had I led a more normal life. But that's one of the side effects of undercover work. And not only that, just the mental health side of things too. I, I definitely still have these moments where the visceral imagery of what I saw in the field will pop up in my head and basically ruin my whole day. Do you feel like that's a form of PTSD? I haven't been diagnosed yet, but... I'm not sure. So I can't say for sure because I haven't gotten that mm-hmm. diagnosis, but I think I think it might be. I would think the PTSD would be common among former investigators. But so what came of the investigations? What have they produced? With the first investigation I conducted, which was at a broiler chicken factory farm in Temperanceville, Virginia, it, it was contracted to Tyson at the time. Uh, the owner of the facility had to uh, stop working with animals for at least a year. Uh, So it's a small victory. And then obviously the farm site was shut down as well. So it's a small victory there, but I mean, it still matters because you never know what could come of that. And then with the other investigations I conducted there, those facilities are still operational, but they had that light shed on them to where that the truth was exposed as to what they were doing to these animals. And a lot of people were able to engage with that and see that. And I think that that matters. Yeah. I don't think there's anything within the animal movement that has, or at least the farmed animal movement that has changed things more than the undercover investigations. But do you think that has, has changed over the years and, and the reasons for, and the impact of undercover investigations has shifted I I think that it definitely has changed. And I think that, you know, now we want to probably focus a lot of our energy on exposing standard practices, because if anything, we would want to expose, you know, these things that they're doing to the animals on a daily basis, where they're causing pain to the animals anyway. And then it could also influence workers resorting to violent behavior to handle the animals when they're not undergoing standard practice procedure. So I think that's that's great to highlight because then it brings that awareness to 
the public where these are things that are happening that the industry condones because it's part of their standard operations. And we need to make it so that these animals don't have to go through this. And the best way we can do that is exposing it so that other people can be aware of what exactly is going on. And then they can give their input. And I think our reach that we have now is way more than we did, you know, 20 years ago, where we can actually influence how these how these uh, larger corporations are treating the animals because that public backlash, that's something that they don't want. And I think that's pretty powerful. So is that the kind of work you're focused on now? I know you're still working with Animal Outlook in a, in a different capacity. Yeah. So I'm really, really glad that, I mean, it's one of the greatest gifts uh, for me that I was able to continue working in investigations as a deputy director of investigations with Animal Outlook because it's something that I didn't think I would be able to do, but I really wanted to stay working in investigations, at least in a different capacity, because I think that it's really important for people to see what's actually going on at these facilities. And the fact that I can continue to do that is is something that I cherish as someone who really felt a lot of guilt leaving the field and leaving those animals behind. But now I realize that there's, there's so much more that I can do. And I think that for me, I really want to contribute to helping people draw those connections that we can explore. And investigations are one of the greatest tools we have for that, to draw the connections for people who are not able to be at those facilities themselves. They can watch it and see for themselves without having to be there. I think that's that's one of the most tar- powerful tools that we have at our disposal. I mean, to be able to do that. I couldn't agree more. Investigations have changed everything. And I would assume having done it yourself, you're in a position to really provide some great support for your investigators as well, because you know what they need. Yeah, I've really actually been trying to focus on the mental health aspect of it, because I think that not a lot of people have talked about that. And there aren't a lot of resources out there for former investigators. So that's been something I've really been focusing on is taking that into consideration because we're always told, you know, we're heroes and we've done this incredible work and it matters and it's really awesome that we were the ones to do it. But after we're done doing it, all we're left with are those really painful memories and there has to be an outlet for that. We can't just carry that around with us. So I've really been trying to focus on how we can deal with that trauma that we incur in the field and live, you know, happy, fruitful lives afterwards. Yeah, that sounds incredibly valuable. And I, I, I'm so happy that that you're there and working on that. And thank you so much for everything you've done. It's really, you've had an extraordinary career so far. And thanks for joining us today on our Hen House and sharing it with us. It's really been an honor, Erin. Thank you for having me. It was really great being able to talk about all these things. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope. 
no way, and, well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head, sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold or go to jasminesinger.com slash fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from meetingplace.com, the industry site, and from our favorite commentator, Hannah Thompson Weeman. And this is what she has to talk about this week. Seafood gets a turn in the quote-unquote documentary spotlight. She is, of course, upset about Seaspiracy. You know, these meat and dairy and, and egg and fish people, they stick together. They compete against each other, but they have some interests in common. And she doesn't like this movie and what it's saying about seafood. Quote, animal agriculture and the meat community are used to dealing with, quote, documentaries popping up that we would say do not exactly document reality. She goes on to say, similar to how its predecessors talking about conspiracy and what the hell and the game changers denigrated animal agriculture. The film criticizes the aquaculture community using false claims, refuted studies and misinformation about subjects such as fisheries, bycatch, overfishing and fish farming. Well, actually, this isn't just the aquaculture. Maybe she doesn't know that the aquaculture industry is about like, you know, growing the fish and. And she's talking a lot about, and conspiracy deals a lot with wild-caught fish. But anyway, she thinks it's all, in, in spite of the fact that she doesn't know that, she thinks it's all fake, I think. The film's ultimate call to action is to ditch seafood altogether in favor of plant-based alternatives. But she says it's been refuted. The University of Washington, I wonder what they had to say about it, I don't really care. And, sev- quote, several participants who were interviewed have said their words have been misrepresented. Well, that's not at all surprising since a lot of the people who were interviewed were people from environmental organizations, and the stuff they said was pretty damning. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised that they're saying they were misrepresented. And, you know, she's pointing out, which is exciting news for us, we know this won't be the last film to criticize our food system. The same filmmakers are working on films about animal-to-human viruses and racial and food injustice. Well, I, for one, cannot wait. That's very exciting news. Next, water. Water already everywhere and all the boards to drink. All right. Sorry. This is a column by uh, Tom Johnston, also on the Meeting Place site, on water. Well, the industry is pretty scared about water. I mean, meat, meat may be flying off the shelves. Meat sales might be going up and they might be really happy about that. But they do look a little bit into the future. They don't want anybody else to look into the future. But he does point out in just nine years from now, a good half of the world's population will be living in areas under high water stress. He points out that this isn't we're not talking about other countries. One need only to look in places like California's Central Valley, Nevada, the beef centric southern plains of Texas and even in the chicken country of eastern Arkansas to see it. Gee, what what do all those places have in common? I don't know. All sit atop some of the nation's most taxed aquifers. Gee, what could be taxing those aquifers? 
highlighting more than ever the reality that water is a finite and precious resource. Well, as we all know, animal agriculture sucks water up like insanity. The amount of water it takes to grow uh, animal foods is like staggering in comparison to the amount of water it takes to grow your veggies. So they're pretty upset about this as well they should be. He's talking about what can be done to conserve water. And he's also talking about using financial wherewithal and influence as the gateway to consumers to help farmers and suppliers implement effective strategies in water conservation. Well, let's just hope they're talking about conservation. But what I really imagine is that they're talking about getting control of more and more of the water supply and using political clout to do that. And, you know, this is just one more disaster that the meat industry is at the forefront of. All right. Our final story today is from a blog called Animal Blog at B-L-A-W-G. It's a law blog. And um, Professor David Casuto uh, is the one who started it, but he frequently has his students, right? I, th- I think that's what's happening here. Veganism is really friendly to all animals. This is by Jennifer Timmons, who, you know, in case you think I'm being mean for pointing out problems with his students, right? She's a law student. So I think I think we're fair game here. And she points out that if she had a dollar for every time that she'd been told she's not a real animal lover because she eats meat and drinks dairy, she would be able to play for all her law textbooks. Well, if I had a dollar for everybody who thinks they're a real animal lover and yet eat meat and drink dairy, thereby proving that they're not, I would be able to pay for a lot more than a bunch of law textbooks, which are pretty expensive, I admit. In reality, she goes on to say, the world has very few options for people who wish to do no harm to any animals through their food habits. Well, you know, I agree with that. Like, none of us live innocently upon this earth. We just all try to do our best. Veganism is not one of those options, or at least not a perfect option. Has she ever heard that expression, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good? Let's look at all of the meat and dairy substitutes and break down how they hurt animals. First thing she goes through is almond milk, talking about how much water, speaking of water, almond milk, almond production takes up, and which is totally true. Not nearly as much as dairy, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> soy and oat milk, she's pointing out the problems of ripping down the Amazon to grow soy, which is exactly what we are doing. Most of that soy, as we know, as I say every single week, is being grown to feed animals. It's just, it'll just make you crazy. She points out there's been pesticide residues found in oats. Uh, you know, certainly uh, the use of pesticides is is widespread. So what? <laughs> the use of pesticides on crops to grow animals is also widespread. It's really a problem. She's talking about how bad pesticides are. and They can make their way into the water system and then can kill fish, which is true. Oh, my God. Coconut milk and processed foods share the same disasters for animals. She's talking mostly about about, you know, things in in the Philippines, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, um, the use of palm oil, the growth of palm oil, and to some extent, coconut oil. A lot of vegans I know don't eat palm oil because of that. You could do the same. Impossible meat. Well, it's made out of soy and, and coconut oil. Oh, my God. She concludes, to sum it all up, choosing what you eat is a personal choice. And no matter which choice is chosen, it will have some sort of negative effect on animals. Well, Ain't that the truth? It is. So maybe your best choice is to have the least amount of effect on animals. When money is involved, the voiceless are often victimized and wildlife is the primary target. I actually don't think wildlife is a target at all. It's collateral damage. But, you know, they don't pay taxes, can't vote and don't show up in city hall with a grudge. Don't you think that the cows and the chickens like 
are in the same position. Anyway, being vegan does not automatically mean that no animals will be harmed by consumptive habits. Well, that is also the truth. What is the point? It is much more complicated than simply saying a person is not going to eat meat and only consume substitutes instead. Uh, it's really not that complicated. It really isn't. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.